Well, I think we'll, uh, we'll begin on page seven of the notes is a chart that you may uh, find helpful, or I, I will probably allude to it just a little bit. And then secondly, uh, one that I just, I think everybody should have gotten it because I sent it down both sides. But the chart that I gave you that this morning here that just came out, it's organizing the the uh, ten plagues um, a little bit differently, only in the sense that uh, there are really three cycles of plagues with the last one, uh, plague number ten, <clears throat> the death of the firstborn, kind of the culminating uh, plague. And... Um, what you see, and it's just helpful, it just helps you to summarize and see the distinctive differences if there are. Um, what the warnings were, in, you, you see in some cases there was no warning. In other cases, God did through, uh, through uh, Moses and Aaron give a warning. And then, um, interesting, this may or may not be important, but it is important to God, the use of a staff. Uh, Moses and Aaron's staff. That was a symbol of the authority of God. And then the last column is the response of Pharaoh to each one of the plagues. And uh, you will see as we get, I don't know how far we'll get today, in, in whether we'll get them all covered or not, but as things get more and more difficult, more and more oppressive for the people of Egypt and, and for Pharaoh, he starts floating several compromises proposing compromises, and of course, um, they ultimately reject those. So there's just a lot of ways to organize these. One of the things that I've done in the chart that's on page 7, and again, there's, there's a lot there that you may not want to delve into, but in the center of the column, what we tried to do there was identify the Egyptian gods that were associated with the particular um, physical element of the plague, you know, hail, sun, and so on. Because remember, I know we talked about that, I wrote a bunch of things on the board last week. Um, the fundamental ethic of the Egyptian worldview was ma'at, M-A apostrophe A-T, is how you bring it into English. And uh, that predictability and order of the universe was to be maintained by Pharaoh, that was his primary job, and it was the Nile River, which was the bloodstream, it's how they talked about it, the bloodstream of one of the gods. Because for the Egyptian, whether you were Pharaoh or whether you were the common ordinary servant, slave, artisan, whomever, you, you, your worldview was a world filled with gods. It was absolutely, it was filled with gods. And one of the things, and this is probably not something you'd ever be interested in doing, but studying the history of the polytheistic development of the gods as you go from the old kingdom to the middle kingdom to the new kingdom, the number of gods increases. <laughs> I mean, it is proliferation of, a, of the idea that the universe is filled with gods. And so, as I said, uh, I, I know I said it last week, and I think I may have said it a couple of times even before that, what we are beginning to study today is this is how I primarily want to look at it. God is, uh, God is making war on the Egyptian worldview. Or you could put it this way. God is dismantling the Egyptian worldview. He is demonstrating the thoroughgoing inadequacy of how the Egyptians looked at things. 
And instead of creating order, God is creating chaos. Instead of fundamentally adhering to their ma'at idea, he is showing without him, it is chaos. And he has the power to bring chaos, cut chaos out of their order. Just a lot of ways to look at this, but it's, uh, it's one of the most extraordinary passages in the whole Bible of the power of God in a very short period of time manifested for one objective, and that objective was to get the Pharaoh to let the Jewish people go. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And I, can I interject? Well, absolutely. I I thought he he was also uh, letting the world more or less know that he had the power, that he was in charge, like even convincing the Jews that they should follow Moses because he orchestrated that. Yeah, yeah. There were, there were, again, there are several ways you can look at this, but certainly it would be accurate to say that there are two audiences for these plagues. Audience number one are the Jewish people, the Israelites, to, um, for them to be reaffirming in terms of their worldview that Yahweh Elohim is the one true and only God the all-powerful, almighty God. And then for the Egyptian, the other primary audience, for the Egyptians, for them to reach the conclusion that their worldview is inadequate. It is only the one true living God, the God of Israel, that is the true God. And there is, I told you that, I think a little bit last week, there is some evidence, extra-biblical evidence, and it would be in a very short period of time, that it did have that kind of impact in Egypt albeit not very long, obviously. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's just a fascinating, it's a fascinating place to, to really land and study for quite a while. And some of the things that occur here in this period of the plagues will also appear in the judgments in the book of Revelation. The seal judgments followed by the trumpet judgments followed by the bowl judgments. Similar, similar demonstrations of God's power. So for now, that's all I'll say about that. So let's pick up with plague number two. I cannot remember if we'd gotten through all that. Plague number one, as you know, is the, the, the Nile and the bodies of water are turned into blood. The second is the plague of frogs. And again, I don't remember. If you look at the whatever chart you want to look at that I'm giving you, you can see that the, the, the frog is a really central um, figure in the polytheistic faith of the Egyptians. Typically, now it isn't always like this, but in many ways, when they made a statue of their gods, I should have brought some <coughs> photographs of these, but when they made statues of their gods, their gods had a human body with the head of an animal or an insect, which is bizarre. I mean, it's a bizarre thing to try to imagine. And, and yet that was a very common thing to see. So if you and I mean, if you're really interested in checking this out, just uh, Google the gods of Egypt or something like that and just see, they'll, they'll show you. There are whole charts and pictures and that the, the, the amount of evidence we have for this because the archaeology that has occurred in Egypt over the, the centuries has yielded a tremendous amount of information. It helps us to understand a little bit of what even they were seeing and, and, and their image and ideas of their gods. So as God is attacking the fro- uh, using the frogs to judge them, he is attacking one of the chief gods of the uh, Egyptian pantheon of gods. 
Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah. So. Is there any uh, reference in the extra biblical literature to the, the plagues? The specific plagues here? No, not that I'm aware of. No. Now, almost always in the ancient world, when pharaohs or whether you're king in Babylonia or the Assyrian Empire, whatever, you did not write down for the records and chronicles of your kingdom your defeats. Never. You never wrote down if you lost a big battle or the gods, as they would say, were judging. You never wrote that down. You only wrote down your victories. And so that may part partially be, Jim, why there are no extra-biblical records of this, because this was a massive, massive defeat for Egypt. I mean, there's nothing, there nothing positive about this. And so that is, uh, and again, the argument from silence is always not a great argument, but I think to an extent, knowing what we know about how the Egyptians and really almost all kings of the ancient world kept their records, they would not record a major defeat like this, ever, ever, ever. They wouldn't do that. Now, the frogs. So um, the, uh, in verse 3, the Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace, your bedroom, your bed, houses of your officials, on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. I don't know about you, but that's pretty horrible. So the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And Egypt, and Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. We talked about that last week because they mimicked the blood um, in the water thing last week. They went out and dug wells and got this fresh water. Then the Egyptian magicians did the same thing. Now the Egyptian magicians are doing the same thing here, increasing the misery. Because that they're creating frogs is not helping the situation. This isn't alleviating the situation. It's making it worse which I find really interesting. But it is, it is certainly demonstrating that, and, and this is, I think, theologically the right way to look at it, Satan is mimicking what God is able to do. And so you have this very interesting phenomenon, both in, in terms of the first plague. The Egyptian magician did not help the situation. He made it worse. And then here, instead of helping the situation, all they are mimicking what Moses and Aaron did. They're not helping it. They're making it worse. So then Pharaoh summoned Moses in verse 8, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, Pharaoh, I leave you, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Interesting. Pharaoh says, pray to Yahweh, pray to your Lord. And Moses says, okay, you set the time for me to do that. Why do you think he did that? Further demonstration of his authority. Demonstration of his authority. This is to be a massive public event. This is not to be in hiding. So it's kind of a, it's, it's again this challenge of gods versus God. And Moses, I think it would be correct and accurate to say, Moses is setting this up. Moses is 
wanting this to be a demonstration of the superiority of the one true and only God. And that as he prays to him, then they will see manifested in very demonstrably and very clearly God answers prayer. Did, uh, uh, I, I did have just a oh, sure. question. Sure. I don't want to go on a bunny trail. Sure you do. You want to ask it. It's when all right. When he talks about magicians, I mean, obviously, like today, we think magicians, we think, you know, rabbit out of a hat or something like that, but that word is used. Um, I'm curious who these people, these magicians were, um, and, and how they would make these fantastic things happen that mimic what the plague does to us, but like, are they just? Well, I mean, you are you are correct. Uh, there are multiple things you're asking there, but uh, the the term magician, the way you and I think of it today, that's not the right way to think of it. Here, uh, these magicians would be court sages who are deeply, deeply into the occult, occult, occult magic or occult activities, where there is a um, a very conscious, um, how do I say this? A very conscious um, awareness of, uh, of of their powers that come from supernatural sources. I would say from evil, from Satan. I mean, they're very. That's that's what they do, and they they use trances. They use they use the stars, astronomy, astrology. I should say more accurately. And all of those things is a part of their magical arts or their magical techniques or whatever. And um, they're very diabolical from uh, my perspective and probably yours. And so there is that, that famil- uh, a real familiarity with occult power and the use of that occult power for not only their ends, but for their, um, their role in advising and counseling the pharaoh. Most ancient... I maybe rephrase that. Most rulers of the ancient world, I'm thinking of Nebuchadnezzar in, in the book of Daniel, their whole court was filled with people like this who advised them, gave counsel, they read the stars, you know, they cut up animals and read the innards of animals, just bizarre ways to try to, to understand the future and manipulate the future, if you will. And again, uh, that power they have, and they're conscious of that, is, a, is an occult power, a secret supernatural power that they use to and manipulate for the ends that they have. Uh, they're usually very powerful people in the court. Um, so, so was there another question embedded in there? No, I, I kind of lost I my... Okay, okay, well. I lost so there it. Was, I mean, it wasn't just tricks and illusions. No, no, <laughs> I, no, this isn't just, this isn't just sleight of hand. Obviously, yeah. some of that they would have done, perhaps, but this is genuine real occult power being manifested here. And it's, um, it, it's really, it, one of the, this is another, oh, there's so many ways to study these things. This is another really interesting thing to study in the Bible. When do you see the greatest manifestations of occult power? When God is about to do something really, really big. You see it here in Exodus. Another time you see is during Elijah and Elisha with King Ahab and that, that, that huge apex-like confrontation between the Baal cult and God. And then the, the third major outpouring of cult power is during the life of Jesus, those three years, when Satan is doing everything he can 
to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. And you see this massive outpouring of occult power. Now, I answered far, far, far more than what you wanted me to do, but that's, that's all right. All right. Uh, so, Pharaoh then responds in verse 2, tomorrow. I, I'm always puzzled by that. Why didn't he say, in an hour, let's gather and you do it? No, tomorrow. I mean, just, okay. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There is no one like, and this is really how you would translate that in Hebrew, like Yahweh Elohim. There's no one like him. The frogs will leave you, your houses, your officials, your people, and they will remain only in the Nile, which is where they came from originally. And Moses, after Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought in Egypt. And the Lord did what Moses said. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled up in heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. So God answers the prayer of Moses. Frogs died. Now, all I want you to do, as hard as that might be, just to imagine what that would have been like, the smell of that, the smell of dead frogs. <laughs> That's a hard thing to, I can't think, nothing positive goes into my mind. Even if you like to eat the delicacy of frog legs, there were a lot of frog legs to eat, so that wouldn't appeal. Now, the third, the third plague is a, a very difficult word to translate. I'm reading from the NIV, and they translate it gnats. Some translations have it as lice. One translation has it as mosquitoes. Uh, it's just, we're, we're really not sure. It's a very difficult word to translate. It's the only time, there in verse 16, dust will become... Again, NIV translates it not. It is only used once in the Bible in this, in this chapter. And so that's why it's difficult to find any corresponding translation. So it's a small insect, possibly a mosquito, more likely a gnat. Lice is less, less appealing as a translation. But there's no warning Moses and Aaron, don't go to Pharaoh and let my people go or God's going to do this. It just happens. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust to the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust to the ground, gnats came on people and animals, and the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. When the mag magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is extraordinary. This is the finger of God. Why do you think the magicians? I mean, remember, these are the court advisors. These are the wise people. These are the sages. These are the counselors to Pharaoh. Why would they have said this is the finger of God? Because they couldn't duplicate it. They couldn't duplicate it. It's not, it's, honestly, it's nothing difficult in terms of thinking about it. There's no other explanation for this. There's no other explanation for this. There's no natural explanation for this. They're recognizing the Lord's power. They're, they're, recognizing, they're recognizing supernatural power. 
whether it's a personal understanding that Yahweh Elohim is the only one true God, I'm not sure we can get there yet. But they're recognizing. And Pharaoh's heart melted, and he gave in to Moses and Aaron. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because that's not what the text says. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen. <clears throat> Let's talk about that for just a second. It's a metaphor. Hard heart. What does that mean? He's angry. Okay. He is angry. Set in his ways. Say it again. Set in his ways. Set in his ways. Stubborn. Unmoved. Rebelling. Yeah. Ah. That's stronger. What do you mean exactly? Well, he, he knows each time he's seen what's happened, he's been told that what was happening, and he's, he's furious that he cannot control that. He's rebelling against it. Okay. Refusing, so, to, refusing to acknowledge it. Okay, so that I, I liked how you said that, because that's, that's, uh, that doesn't have to come up that way, but I think you're spot on. Um, to have a hard heart means... You are willfully and intentionally, rebelliously, rejecting the obvious. Stubborn. Pardon? Stubborn. Well, yes, but it's even, I mean, it's stubborn, obstinate. It's like, don't bother me with the evidence. I'm still not going to believe it. It's willful. It is a willful, intentional. And the scriptures, now, most famously, hardening of heart, a heart is Pharaoh. That's most famously in the Bible. But the scriptures talk of several kings of Judah, as well as several other kings, another hardening their hearts. And the New Testament talks of the hardness of the human heart. And it is, uh, again, it's a metaphor, and you have to work through what that means. But a hardness of heart means, I don't care what the evidence is saying, I'm not going to believe this. I'm just going to reject it. I mean, it's like, for Pharaoh, at least I would think he would agree with this, for Pharaoh, the evidence is obvious. Moses and Aaron said, let our people go, or this is what's going to happen to you. Our God's going to do this. And Pharaoh was saying, okay, you can keep doing it, but I'm not letting you, I'm not letting you go. I reject this idea that you are telling me about Yahweh Elohim. I am not going to let you go. My heart is rebelliously, defiantly, stubbornly hard. Don't bother me with the evidence. Pharaoh says, why would, why would you bother me with slaves telling me about the slaves' God when mm. I know... Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, God's going to mm. really have to break Pharaoh. And, of course, he's not there yet. All right, now, the first cycle of plagues is over, the, turning them out of blood, frogs and the gnats, or whatever those insects are. Now, there's a second cycle, and that begins with the flies. And I, it, this second cycle is marked off by another time marker. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, the second cycle begins, and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, now, normally, when it says go to the river, that would have been a worshipful act on the part of Pharaoh. As he goes down to the Nile, 
there, there were temples all along, well, little small temples all along the Nile there, the Memphis area, which is where the, the court is. And so presumably he's not going down to the Nile to bathe. He's going down to the Nile as a worshipful uh, act. Remember, he's an incarnate god, and he's going down to the Nile, the bloodstream of Osiris. Osiris is the most important god to Pharaoh. And so he goes down. And say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies, even the ground will be covered with them. It has been often suggested that this plague of flies connects with the frogs because they, they who had been feeding on the dead frogs, which, you know, Wherever there's decaying matter, you're going to see lots of frogs. Like right there's a dove or a pigeon sitting on the edge of that. Uh, it just flew away. I've never seen that before. I have no idea why I brought that up. <laughs> if you do not let my people go, these swarms of flies. But on that day, verse 22, I will deal, deal differently with the land of Goshen. What's the land of Goshen? Where the Israelites live. That's where the Israelites are living. Where my people live, no swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, I the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. So several of the charts indicate that this is a significant difference now. Where the Israelites would have experienced the effects of the other plagues, not this one. They now will be exempt, would that be a helpful word? They'll be exempt from this. And so it is now the beginning of this demarcation between the Israelites and Egypt. That is going to further demonstrate that God is attacking the worldview of Egypt and demonstrating to the Jews, to the Israelites, that he is their God, one true and only God far, far, far superior to anything the Egyptians are doing. And so this is it's a very important distinction. Cycle two goes now a different direction than the first uh, three. Okay? We uh, kind of passed over the gnats and the lice here, and, and that's interesting because the magicians said it's the finger of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but he refused. That's right. So verse 24, okay, and the Lord did this, meaning sent, it's not tomorrow, the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace, into the houses of his officials throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by the flies. And I don't know about you, but I hate flies in the summertime. That, of all the things that happen in the summer, that's the one thing I don't particularly like when I'm outside. And I don't know about you, when I'm cutting grass and flies around, they bite. Jerry, they bite you. Mm -hmm. Oh, anyway, you don't know what I'm talking about. And the Lord did this, all right? Pharaoh then summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. So what is he doing? He's offering a compromise. Uh, You're never leaving this country. You're never leaving the role you play. But I will let you worship your God here. Up in Goshen, we're not going to suppress it, worship. But Moses said that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? 
Now, what does that mean? Because the Israelites will offer burnt offerings of various animals, all of those animals to the Egyptians are regarded as gods. And so Moses is bringing up a very valid point that renders Pharaoh's compromise absolutely unworkable. Because that cow and those animals were associated with the god Hathor, H-A-T-H-O-R, and that would be a detestable, that would be offensive. It would be like, no, not exactly, but it would be like you and I going to India and slaughtering cows and steers walking the streets and having a barbecue that night. And I don't know if, if that is absolutely true. If you do that in major parts of India today, you will create a riot. I mean, it's a serious issue because of the worldview of Egyptian, I'm sorry, of Indian Hinduism. So anyway, Moses is raising a good point. And so he says, verse 27, we will must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. So how does Pharaoh respond? I will not let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness. But you must not go very far. I, sorry, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in your wilderness, but you must not go very far. Second compromise. What does that mean, go very far? Go from Goshen five miles east, and that's it? So, again, he's trying to offer a compromise, and Moses says, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. So Moses is going to test this compromise. You really mean that? Or are you going to act deceitfully again? Are you lying? Verse 30, Then Moses left Pharaoh, prayed to the Lord. The Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left. Pharaoh and his officials and his people, and not a fly remained. That's how, that's how thoroughgoing God's response to the prayer was. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Plague number five. Okay? Four down, six to go. Verse 1, chapter 9. Then the Lord said to, Pharaoh, to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on the livestock in the field. All of your livestock, horses, donkeys, camels, cattle, sheep, goats. But... The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to Israelites will die. Again, second distinction between the two. Some have suggested that this plague is anthrax. It's just impossible to prove that. But it would fit, because it would be that kind of devastating plague that could fit the description that we have. But I certainly am not going to die for that. So, very significant, because... As with the Nile, the livestock, this, this, is, this is a heartbeat of the Egyptian economy. I mean, if he is going to affect all of the livestock, this is the center of the Egyptian economy. It would be like if, if all the cattle, every <coughs> living 
uh, animal in Nebraska and Montana and Wyoming and even Kansas with all those huge feedlots, got anthrax and died, that would, that would be a very, very significant blow to the economy. Now, guys, you really like this warm weather. That's why it's warm in this room. If it's nice and cold out, then it's comfortable in this room. So the great challenge I have is that some of you are going to say, oh, my, it's so comfortable. I think I'll take a nap. <laughs> Don't take a nap. All right. Are you with me? Do you want to get up and walk around a little bit? It is getting warm in here. All right. Now, verse 5. Then the Lord set a time and said, tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. The livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one Animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated. This is interesting. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites died. Yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. Isn't that interesting? That he, he what he must have done, and, and you can look on one of the maps I gave you. Memphis is in the very northern part of the Nile, right before the delta starts to to form. And Goshen is over here. So that's not that big of a trip. So what he must have done is he, he sent a team of investigators from you know, Homeland Security and had them go check out, did any of the Israelites' cattle die? No. Why did he do that? Why do you think he did that? He still doesn't believe Okay, he, he he still doesn't believe, but he, to, but why he? What does he want to verify? It's simple. It's just simple. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Moses said that none of the Israelites' cattle are going to die. Did they? And the evidence is no. Not one of them died. You would think. Oh my goodness, Pharaoh would say, Moses is right. Lord God of the Hebrews. Is more powerful than any of my gods. But they didn't get any relief from this like they did these other first That's four, right. four plagues. That's right. they, those animals remained dead. That's right. This 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 would be devastating to their economy. I was gonna ask about um, Pharaoh the I mean they had the Israelites there to make make it making bricks and stuff for the, help their economy there and stuff. And if they, another thing with he would be thinking about that too. I mean, they're going to leave, and you know who's going to do it. Of course, of course. Yeah. I mean, he. You, I mean, you're at, at several levels. Pharaoh is considering what it would be if all the Israelites left, but that would be the most. That would equally be as devastating mm. their economy because mm. it's a slave-based economy. Mm-hmm. All right, you see this remarkable hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which is made a major part. Now, verse eight is the sixth. Uh, plague, and there's no warning here. As soon as the fifth plague is over, bang, this one occurs. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace, have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. Um, it's, it's hard to know exactly what this was other than boils. Because that term can be translated festering sores. It can be translated pus-filled things. I mean, it's just a horrible word to translate. But this would have been miserable. So they took the soot from a furnace, stood before Pharaoh, Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on the people and animals. 
Magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and all the Egyptians. Verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's a change. And he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Now let's, let's think for just a moment, if you don't mind, theologically about this. <clears throat> First five plagues, we see an intentional act on the part of Pharaoh to harden his heart. Objection all we discussed a moment ago. But now the text says the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. How do we think about that uh, theologically? Well, initially, God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. God had said that. Mm -hmm. And is Pharaoh getting get to the place where he's starting to wonder about things and, and so then God steps in and continues to harden his heart to continue to set the stage for the climax? Well, that's certainly, there's, I think that's certainly true. The, the climax, the end of this is now nearer than it was. Um, yes? Are there any other ways to approach this, Jim? Yeah, I, I mean, I would think about it in the same way I think about people who live today and reject the Lord and reject the Lord and reject the Lord. And eventually there's, they reach a point where just God just gives them over to their, okay. I don't know, intellectual or whatever it is. Their depravity. Rejection, their depravity, their rejection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and this is sort of what I see with Pharaoh here. Yeah. He'd been given opportunity, and maybe God in his graciousness would have responded differently had Pharaoh shown some... If Pharaoh is acting on his in his will in the first five plagues and so on, and hardens his heart, hardens his heart, and hardens his heart, can we look at it from this perspective? He is rejecting the grace of God because he has an opportunity to respond. But he's not. He's hardening his heart. He's willfully rejecting all the evidence regardless of what you say. I don't want to be bothered by this. I'm not letting you go, and I don't believe your God is any greater than my God. And I didn't, Jim didn't quite put it this way, but let me put it this way. Only God knows this in a human being's uh, life. But Pharaoh crossed the line, a line of no return. That theologically, no matter what God does, he will not respond. He will not respond. Well, he, God is going to have to coerce him. God is going to have to force him. But as an act of his will, he will never embrace these truths. And so now God hardens his heart. As a matter of fact, uh, we, we won't take the time to do this, but if you go to the book of Romans in chapter 9, Paul brings this up. And he brings this up from this perspective. God hardening his, that is Pharaoh's heart, and all that happened brought glory to God because his power was manifested in and through Pharaoh, even in the hardening of his heart. Um, only God knows that. But as Jim put it, 
a little more broadly. Um, is there a point in a person's life where they reject God's grace so many times that God makes the decision, doesn't matter what I do, you will never, ever respond in faith to what I'm doing. Well, and that God then would use, uh, this is so, I'm not sure I want to go down this one, because this raises lots of theological issues. Some of them fill with quite a bit of tension. But something has happened here. When it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, something has happened. Um, Did Pharaoh pass a point of no return? That he will, no matter what God does, he will never, ever accept that he is the one true and only God. He will be forced, because God's going to have to basically break him, but he's never going to acknowledge, the way we might put it, he's never going to put his trust in God. Do you think that maybe, and I'm I'm not articulating this, the bigger scheme in God's life, God's plan was that he also wanted to reach the Egyptian people. And he had to break down of believing that Pharaoh was all-knowing. And it took more breaking before the Pharaoh would finally give in and acknowledge it, and the Egyptian people saw that. Well, that, I think to an extent you're right. Uh, the in many ways, the will of the Egyptian people, at least in the court and all around where where these are congregated, um, because when they leave, that is when the Jewish people leave, when the Israelites leave, the Egyptian people will give them an enormous amount of the wealth of Egypt. As God said, in effect, payment for your 400 years of slavery. And I, they willingly do this. The Egyptian people willingly do this. They're not coerced into doing this. So it's yeah, it's just an interesting dynamic going on at lots of different levels here in this a very significant confrontation between the one true God and these false gods of Egypt. Let's look at what happens now. The plague that begins in verse 13. Now, because of the agricultural cycle of Egypt... This is about March. This is about in March. And the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go that they may worship me. Or this time, I will send the full force of my plagues against you, your officials, your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. This is specifically addressed at proving something, that he is the one true and only God. (coughs) For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you from the face of the earth. And this is what Paul quotes in Romans. That I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh. This is one of the reasons I created you. That's a significant statement. God is the creator. God is the author of life. 
and God's the sovereign Lord of history. Three things from that statement. It's an extraordinary claim. Verse 17, yet still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person, the animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Now, what kind of animals are these? Um, there's been a tremendous amount of discussion. Uh, were the animals that were struck in the previous plague those around the capital, Memphis, and just in the Delta region? And these are animals that are coming farther from the south, up the Nile? Um, not sure. But God in his grace is saying, I'm sending you a warning of what I'm going to do. Get into shelter. Go, Ed. What kind of time period is this? Because I mean, is there months in between all these? Does, I mean, there's a possibility to have bought more animals. There is. There yeah. is here. There is between these, the plague that uh, started in eight and in the beginning of nine. There is probably four months between these two plagues. That's what I'm saying, where they, they would perhaps, probably have brought more up from... Because remember, the Nile goes all the way down to central Africa, rises in Lake Victoria and all that in central Africa. And so, I mean, that they would have animals that would have replenished uh, the other ones is not difficult to imagine. And it is about three or four months later, because the first uh, the plague uh, of the, on the livestock is in January. This is more than likely March, early April. So uh, God's grace is evident here. Now let's, let's see what happens. Those officials who feared the word of the Lord, in verse 20, hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall over all Egypt on people, animals, everything growing, everything growing in the fields of Egypt. Verse 23, when Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down the ground. The Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. The Lord, hail fell, lightning flashed. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, people, animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. Verse 26, the only place it did not hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. This is, a, this is remarkable now when we look at the response of Pharaoh. We have never seen this before. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, this time I have sinned. No qualifications. No rationalizations. This time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right, and my, and my people are in the wrong. Pharaoh is making an ethical evaluation. You're right. We're wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we've had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. No compromise, no proposal. We've sinned. I have sinned. He personalized it. 
I'm going to let you go. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop. There will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. That's, a, that's, a, that's an incredibly important statement. It's a statement of his creation, creating power. It's a statement of his sovereignty. It's a statement of his providence. <laughs> but I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. Remember, fear is a worship word. It's a response word to God's revelation. So Moses is sensing, sensing that Pharaoh isn't genuine about this. He puts a little parenthesis. The flax and barley were destroyed. Barley was headed, had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Normally along the Nile, uh, wheat and spelt are harvested in July. That's why we're pretty sure this is March, April time frame. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped, and rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go. This is the Lord had said through Moses. You have the hardening of his heart, but he hardens his heart. Now, there are three more left, eight, nine, and ten. We won't get through all of these. But in the remaining moments, let's look at this plague of locusts. This is, there's a lot in this. That's almost all of chapter 10. Um, and we, we learned some geography here as well. So let's, let's look at this. And it's, again, probably April area in terms of the time frame. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. Now, what I want you to notice, there are two purpose statements here. One we've seen before, one we haven't seen before. God is saying, now, if I use this word, do you know what I mean? Moses, sorry, the Lord is saying to Moses, there is a didactic purpose. What does didactic mean? Joel? Two, two purposes, double meaning, like a double purpose. Or yeah, yeah, and to teach it, right. and to teach it and proclaim it. Now look at, look at the first purpose, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed signs among them. God hasn't said this before. Moses, one of the purposes of these signs is to teach your kids and your grandkids. Why? Now, just think, think about this for a minute. The, grand, the children and grandchildren, where will they be when you start teaching them? In the wilderness. In the wilderness? Who are they? They are the covenant people. They are the covenant people. And it's just that God, and this is something you see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You see it over and over and over again. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. This is a seminal, threshold, watershed, linchpin, whatever metaphor you want to use, in the history of Israel. 
God is about to God is about to bring them as a nation out of slavery, give them a constitution, and give them the land that He promised Abraham. But this is step one, and the story that you will tell to your children and your grandchildren is how Yahweh Elohim liberated us from Egypt by power, by miraculous, supernatural, awesome power. You sit your little boy and your little girl on your knee and you say, I want to tell you how God dismantled the Egyptian worldview. That's how I would put it to my children. You would just tell them the story. I want to tell you, I mean, it's just to tell them this. And that's why in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as they're about to enter the land, Moses, because Deuteronomy is the second um, uh, iteration of the law, just because it's the new generation. He says, this is what I want you to do. Hear, O Issa, the Lord your God is one. Yahweh Elohim is one God. He's the only true God. What do you do with truth like that? You internalize it. You put it in your heart. And secondly, you love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thirdly, then what do you do? You teach it. You teach it to your children. And so Moses, sorry, God is laying down to Moses a marker that you're going to see now throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Teach this to your children. Because God will say, your children will forget. Your grandchildren will forget who I am. Does that sound familiar? If you and I do not teach our children and our grandchildren the things of the Lord, they won't know them. Or if they learned them when they were with, they'll forget them. You see, God is a good teacher. He gives you a preview, and he gives you the view, and he's continually reviewing that you don't forget. Why did Jesus institute the Lord's table? So that we wouldn't forget. We would always remember what Jesus did for us. I mean, these little object lessons that are just throughout the Bible, because God knows you will forget. You will forget who I am and what I did. So Moses, teach it, teach it teach it. And then the second purpose is you may know that I am Yahweh. I am the one true only God. So this is a little additional uh, purpose to what God is doing here. And um, I know, uh, I think almost all of you around the table have children, uh, grandchildren, and that is just one of the things that is incumbent incumbent upon us to do is to teach our children and grandchildren things of the Lord. It's really important we do that. Because if we don't do it, are they going to hear it at their school? Probably not, unless they go to a faith-based school. Are they going to hear it in the entertainment? No. Where are they going to hear it? They're not going to hear it anywhere else. So this becomes a really, really important point that you're going to see again and again. So let's get started with us. We won't get this finished today. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? They've never talked to Pharaoh like that. 
Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in the field. And I don't know how much you know about locusts. We can have that in this part of the country, some other parts of our country. But in the Middle East, in Africa, that is still a massive, massive problem. And depending on the, the year and depending on what's happening, they literally will strip a whole area of every living, green, growing thing. I was in Vietnam in 68. Oh. And I don't remember the month, but it was fall or what was the year of the Really? And the locusts were about this big. Oh, my goodness. And I have never seen anything like that in my life. There was no way to keep them out of your tent or your hooch or the helicopters or bunkers. I mean, it's just incredible. Just everywhere. Oh, my goodness. So it was a real example to me, but it is. It's an incredible experience. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely devastating. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't know if that was the case there in Vietnam, but there are swarms. I mean, just absolute swarms where you can't see. It can almost become like 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 night in the middle of the day because they're so thick. And, yeah. and, just, and that's what God is doing here. God's going to send this. Uh, and then verse uh, 6, They will fill your houses and those of your officials and the Egyptians, something neither your parents nor your ancestors have ever seen from that day they settled in this land until now. And this part of the world would have experienced locust infestations. But God is saying, never like this. Now, I want to do two more things because it's a quarter of. But look at verse 7. This is a very, very, very instructive verse. Pharaoh's officials, who are they? Probably some of the magicians, the sages, the advisors, the counselors. How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go, so that they may worship the Lord their God. And then this question, do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? This is plague eight. It hasn't started yet. And now they are concluding, Pharaoh, let him go. It isn't worth it. My, My version says servants. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, this is very, they're saying, give it up. Give it up. And Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, but tell me who will be going. <laughs> Moses answered, we will go with our young and our old, our sons, our daughters, our flocks, our herds, because we celebrate the festival of the Lord. Pharaoh said, this is hilarious. The Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you're bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord that what you have been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence, literally expelled. So a third compromise. This is the third one he's floating. Why just the men? Well, they won't permanently go if the wives and the kids are still in Egypt. So come back next week and let's see what happens. Okay. Did that, did he the Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. That, that's coming up. 
I want to spend quite a bit of time on the 10th plague because a lot happens there. The Feast of Passover instituted, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and I want to spend a lot of time on that. So uh, we will we'll get through the rest of Plague 8, look at Plague 9, and then really slow down quite a bit with the 10th plague. So I hope, um, I hope this is a blessing to you. We're going through areas that often you don't study, and the way I'm trying to present it with all these different charts just to help you further understand the depth of this. All right? Let me pray here. Lord, we're grateful for uh, the reality and the fact that we can worship you, and Lord, that you give us the opportunity to study your revelation to us, the Bible. And Lord, as we just read here a few verses ago, you said to Moses, you said something you didn't say up to this point. Moses, I'm doing this too, and I want you to teach this to your children and grandchildren. That constant responsibility we have as in this room now as fathers and grandfathers to make sure we are teaching these things to our kids. The object lessons that are clear, that the things that teach truth about God, the each one of the plagues said something about your power. Each one of the plagues said something about your sovereignty. Each one of the plagues said something about you being the true creator God of all things. They're great truths. And it's even with the Lord Jesus in instituting the Lord's table, we see that you want us to constantly have object lessons, reference points, ways to communicate and teach truth about you. Help us to take that responsibility very seriously. And I thank you very much that you, the all-powerful, almighty God, are also a God of compassion and grace and mercy, a God of forgiveness, a God of patience, the God that takes your time in maturing and developing each one of us. I thank you for that. I'm so glad, dear Lord, in my own life that you have not dealt with me only on the basis of justice. If that were the case, there would never be any hope. But because you are a God of grace and mercy, that's how you've dealt with me and the opportunity you've given me to respond to your grace in 1972. And the change that brought in my life and every one of us around this room could testify to that. Because of your grace, and we put your faith, our faith in your son, we become a part of your family. And now you develop and mature and grow us to your own glory. Help us not to have hard hearts like Pharaoh did, but to have soft, malleable, compassionate hearts. And allow you to mold and shape us into the men you want us to be. So take us uh, to our homes or places of business where we go here and ask your protection. Watch care over us on this remarkable summer day in February. We thank you for creating it and sharing it with us. May we represent you well the rest of this day in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And we'll see you next week.